I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Priscilla's Heartbreak Hotel edition. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. On today's show, Priscilla is a feature film. It stars Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla Presley. It's a retelling of the Elvis myth from the entirely other point of view of his way too young bride. Uh, It's based on Priscilla Presley's memoir. Otherwise, it's a Sofia Coppola joint all the way she wrote, directed, produced. And then... Anatomy of a Fall is a French film from director Justine Triette about a woman who's accused of murdering her husband who has died under supremely ambiguous circumstances. It stars, uh, to my mind, the extraordinary Sandra Huller as the accused. And finally, the weird and very, I think, fetching internet phenomenon, the miniature show called Hot Ones, in which celebrities give interviews while eating progressively hotter and hotter hot sauces. Yes, it kind of works. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens is the uh, film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. We got a double movie day. Yeah, I love that we're doing two movies, good movies in my mind, and a hot ones. That is just such a nice (laughs) recipe for a show. (laughs) It's so good. I agree. All right. Well, uh, let's discuss. Sofia Coppola is the director, of course, of such films as just name them, right? Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, Bling Ring, many, many, many. Um, In a way, (laughs) this is the perfect subject for her, if you think about it. A young woman imprisoned in a gilded cage has been a preoccupation of hers throughout her career. Um, And in this instance, the adjective young doesn't really quite capture it. Priscilla Presley was 14 years old when Elvis began. We'll just say, like, almost as a placeholder concept here, let's just say when he began courting her, um, he was 24 years old, and he was very much already Elvis. The movie covers this weirdly otherworldly courtship through marriage and her internment, really effectively, at the Graceland Mansion. Anyway, it's called Priscilla. It's from Sofia Coppola. It stars... Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla and Jacob Elordi as the king himself. In the clip, you're going to hear a conversation between the young Priscilla and Elvis. They're talking about Elvis's popularity with young people. Let's listen. So, uh, so what, what, what are the kids back home listening to these days? Mm-hmm. Bobby Darren. And Fabian. And you. <laughs> That's good. I, uh, I thought they might have forgotten about me. No. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? You got, a, you got a favorite song? What are you going to make me give? Heartbreak Hotel. <laughs> what kids still hanging, huh? Can I just say that's the third time I've seen that scene, having seen the movie twice and now heard that audio clip, and I still don't know what Jacob Elordi is saying in that last line. <laughs> I think his actually his lack of articulation is probably perfect for Elvis's actual speaking style, but there's a lot of mumbling going on. Well, well there's something to that, right? Like, like pitching your voice slowly below the threshold of hearing, which forces people to come closer, if you're a star of the magnitude of Elvis and attend to your every word, and then if they don't hear it's their problem and they're in this awkward position of having to say, excuse me, which makes them seem weak or annoying. It is, it's funny. I mean, it's a movie, Dana, let me throw it to you with a question. I mean, 
it's kind of in a weird way a you know juicy and somewhat obvious source material for a movie and yet it's just such an interesting subtle exploration of a kind of garishly over the top topic right i mean anyway what do you make of it i mean like i said i've now seen it twice i actually went back to the theater to see it because it's so opaque and um and yet diaphanous which i guess means that yeah, it's see-through see and not see-through at the same time <laughs> oh um, perfect though. it's so much both of those things that after one first viewing, it was just a sort of set of feelings and images in my mind. I couldn't remember what order anything happened in. I had no idea what, you know, the sort of point of view about their story was. And so I went back to see it again, and I don't think it elucidated a whole lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would say probably that if you're a big Sofia Coppola fan and you you love those, you know, gilded cages, as you said, that she builds around her heroines, you will probably love the experience of viewing this movie, but you might, like me, come out somewhat frustrated by a sense that it's all about surfaces and feelings and momentary flights of expression rather than any kind of in-depth storytelling or any real sense of either of these two characters' psychology. And maybe that's not what the movie sets out to do. And without delivering a disquisition on the entire career of Sofia Coppola, that to me is a recurring problem in her movies, that they have this, you know, gorgeous satiny sheen and beautiful art direction, incredible taste, and that sometimes they feel slight. And uh, and this one, I think, very much falls victim to that. Not to also launch into a disquisition on the entire career of Sofia Coppola, but the movie kind of asks you to because of the way that it uses this story to remix so many of the themes that she is interested in. And I left it thinking about how I feel about her being, I don't know, is she our foremost female auteur whose deal is that she puts an imprint on everything she makes? I mean, I don't know if she's as famous or revered as Ava DuVernay, but there's a, a different kind of range in Ava DuVernay's work. I mean, Sofia Coppola is the person who's making Sofia Coppola movies in in a way. And the thing I always feel coming out of it is this mix of admiration and disappointment for what it is in a woman's life that she is curious about. Like on the one hand, she's so smart and it makes perfect sense that this daughter of a director would take as her preferred subject the subjectivity within objectivity of a certain kind of womanhood, right? Like you can be the the object of desire and that's not an emotional dead end. That's actually a thing that women feel, right? Like the power that comes from being the object and the the power at the other end of the male gaze, right? Like <laughs> it's, it is a certain kind of power and it's a power with limits and like, so many of her women are kind of thinking about that and working through that. And this is almost the the simplest and most direct version of that. And that is like a totally real and rich and interesting emotional terrain. But it's also just such a small slice of of womanhood. And anyway, it's just the problem with representation. It's like not fair for Sofia Coppola to have to make movies because she's, I think, and Dana, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, like the big name brand lady who makes movies that are ladies movies. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I actually think I liked this more than a lot of Sofia Coppola's other movies in its quietude. Mm. But but it also made me think about why I don't always, uh, why I wouldn't list her as one of my faves. Yeah. I mean, let me say right off the bat, 
that I really, really admired this movie and I don't always love her work. I mean, the part I liked most of the movie was the early, maybe third of it, which is yes. really reminded me of Lost in Translation for it just the sheer amount of like, kind of, for lack of a better word, right? Like a pregnant tension between a younger woman and an older man, like Lost in Translation, right? And the relationship is defined for that third by non-consummation, right? According to this telling of the story, and it may well be true, they didn't really consummate their relationship until significantly after the two met. And so it does feel like a weird courtship. And that, however, whatever you make of that, like maybe anachronistic, chivalric gesture, it makes the relationship, it's, it's like both unreal and real at the same time in the weirdest possible way. He doesn't treat her like she's a groupie or a consumable uh, and a disposable. You know, he takes her in a weird way, kind of seriously, though there are hints of what's going to come. And then you get, I thought, actually a relatively subtle demonstration of how power, like the massive power discrepancy begins to express itself over time and her struggle to like just be minimally an adult self within the confines of this relationship and the you know the other thing i would just say is uh, i'll throw it back to you dana but one of the things i i really genuinely admired about the movie is it was so careful to as they say focalize virtually every shot of the movie and and with one i think very thematically important exception every shot of elvis through priscilla it was like like there was this commitment to telling her story and only her story from the point of view of someone who is connected to a, a like kind of unprecedented form of celebrity and actually from a distance that would seem to be horizon expanding in a massive way for this woman for this girl um it turns out to be radically horizon shrinking and the movie it seemed to me was very in control of that as a both as an aesthetic and as a theme. But anyway, um, so I agree with you. There's there's the play between surface and depth for Coppola is so curious and can be frustrating at the same time. I think there's a high degree of, of self-awareness and control but behind the movie. Oh, there absolutely is self-awareness and control. I mean, this is not this is not a yeah. sloppy, you know, tonally varying kind of movie. In fact, it's arguably could use a little more tonal variation. But I agree, especially after, you know, the big Baz Luhrmann Elvis having just come out and us getting this big, you know, very deliberately dazzling fireworks filled view of his of his perspective and his life that it's 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 wonderful that it quietly sits in the perspective of Priscilla, who, as you say, I mean, when the movie starts out, just has so little experience of the world, right? So we're seeing all of this kind of glamour and glitz for the first time through her eyes. And that gives the movie this muted quality that makes it, even if you are, are a little bit like me, maddened that it doesn't do enough, it makes it an easy watch, you know? I mean, the the attention to detail and costuming and production design is is gorgeous and it's and it's low key. You know, it's not calling attention to itself in the way the Boslerman movie did. They're very different movies and I'm not even trying to make a, a a point for point comparison, but it feels very different and very inside of her world. I wanted to say one thing about the uh, the deflowering of Priscilla and the way the movie treats that. There's I'm going to write about this for Slate, I think in connection with another movie about um, a, a relationship with an underage person, Todd Haynes's upcoming movie. Um, and and there's something about the way this movie treats it that's that's odd to me in that Sofia Coppola both doesn't want to 
you know, step in as a filmmaking voice and deliver a judgment, which I respect, you know, I, and I admire that she is not trying to send a message like this is an abusive relationship. Here are the markers of abuse. You all must think about that. She does sort of leave that open and have some um, ambiguity as to, you know, what seems to be a real bond between them, even if it's a very unhealthy and toxic one in the end. But at the same time, the movie is obsessed with the scene of her losing her virginity to him and how it's eternally deferred, in part because of of her age at the beginning, in part because of his religiosity and his, you know, seeming sexual squeamishness. And there's scene after scene where he refuses to have sex with her, right, while she wants to. And and I think that the movie is doing that, as you say, to sort of, you know, to show that it was more complicated than just a child being groomed and, you know, delivered up to a rock star in, in what we might think of as the most uh, voracious way. But then when it actually happens, if this is when it actually happens, it's so muted and almost witty the way that she frames it. There's this montage, this long montage at one point of the outside of Elvis's bedroom door at Graceland, where they've spent many nights, you know, sleeping together, not having sex. And uh, and then you see someone, a, you know, a housekeeper, I guess, deliver meal after meal as if they're you know, spending days in bed together. And there's all these trays being put outside the door and taken away. And that's it. Like, that's the moment. And I'm not saying we have to have some gritty sex scene by any means, but this is such an important plot point in the movie. And it's so important to the character Priscilla. She says, I want to feel desired to him at one point, you know, and yet you don't get to see her experience any moment of, you know, love living that desire or being desired. And those seemed like strange choices to me. Well, and honestly, Dana, I'm not I'm still not even sure because I think I think it's maybe implied that they're doing other things during that montage and that they don't actually consummate the relationship sexually until after they get married, which is suggested by her quick pregnancy. And it's kind of crazy that we don't know since so much in the movie is about this. But yeah, exactly. Julia, you may be right. You may be right that the movie is implying that their their marriage or their relationship is consummated after their marriage and not right after her graduation, which is when that montage sequence I mentioned happens. But either way, my point stands, which is that it's somewhat maddening and confusing that Sofia Coppola wants to defer and defer and defer this moment and show us how much it means to Priscilla and how odd it is that, you know, that they're still sort of years into their relationship arguing about when and whether to have sex. And yet, elide the moment so completely. I mean, I want to give them their privacy. I don't need some kind of graphic nude sex scene. But to not even have it land clearly with the viewer, including in my case, a two-time viewer now, when this actually happened, seems so freaking muted that I'm not quite sure what the point is that Sofia Coppola is trying to make about it. Yeah. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's interesting. Like it comes back to... Yeah. The, the point I was making initially, which is that if you try to build a self around being the object and being someone who is waiting for the consummation of someone else's desire, there's no, there's no consummation that will ever be fully satisfying, right? Like you got to get to being the subject somehow. So like, maybe that's the point. All right. Well, we're interestingly split ish on the movie. I was really grateful to see it admired most of it. I think you guys were too. Um, anyway, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's in theaters now. Priscilla, it's the Sofia Coppola film about Priscilla Presley. Let's move on. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what do you have? Steve, all we've got this week is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment. We've decided this week because we talk about, as one of our main segments, a very twisty, turny, whodunit-style thriller, Anatomy of a Fall, that we would have one of our classic spoiler plus segments where we just 
fully get into the details that we wouldn't want to reveal in a main segment for those who haven't seen the movie. After you have seen it, as you'll see, it's the kind of movie that afterwards you really want to toss around different theories about what might have happened and what the filmmaker's intended perspective is on it. And that's what we will discuss in our Plus segment today. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you are a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and you get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member, and you will be supporting us and the work of all of our wonderful colleagues. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, Anatomy of a Fall opens on a most curious interview. It's a famous writer of autofiction, as we come to find out, and a seemingly infatuated grad student. And it's even unclear for a minute who exactly is interviewing who. Uh, The famous writer is drinking wine in the middle of the day. There's some kind of flirtation going on. However, the writer's husband is above them, and he's playing a loud, weird, menacing music track over and over again, making the interview impossible. He's just drowning out their voices effectively. Thus begins the French film Anatomy of a Fall. Soon the husband is dead from, yes, a fall from uh, the upstairs window, and the wife, the literary star, is the chief suspect. What follows is a kind of non-whodunit, and it's superficially a courtroom drama, but so much more. It's really an anatomy of a family riven by silences and power discrepancies, uh, as we come to discover. It's directed by Justine Triette, and it stars Sandra Huller, Swan Arlo, and uh, the remarkable, we should say, Milo Machado Grainer as the couple's blind son. In the clip we're about to hear, the main character, Sandra, is talking to her attorney, played by Arlo. They're talking about an audio recording of a fight that Sandra had with her husband. It's a key piece of evidence in the case against her, but she doesn't think it proves anything. Anyway, let's have a listen. That recording is not reality. It is a part of it, maybe. If you have an extreme moment in life, an emotional peak, and you focus on it, it, of course it crushes everything. It may seem like irrefutable proof, but actually warps everything. It's not reality. It's our voices. That's true, but it's not who we are. I don't give a fuck about what is reality, okay? You, You need to start seeing yourself the way others are going to perceive you. A trial is not about the truth. It's, uh, it's I didn't about... know that be a trial. Well, there is. Dana, let me let me also start with you this time. Um, my impression is you loved this movie. I haven't read your review, but from what you've said, what do you make of Anatomy of a Fall? Yeah, I haven't reviewed it. I hope that I get to write about it sometime before the end of the year, but I really, really liked it. I I think I endorsed it on the show a few weeks ago, didn't I? It was one of my discoveries at the, at the New York Film Festival a couple months ago. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say too much about it because this is so much a, a movie that reveals its own twists. But as you can hear from that um, that conversation, I mean, this is a movie. It's 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 a pretty talky movie, right? It's a movie about a writer who's you know who's recently dead husband is also a writer and who they seem to live in a very philosophical environment. So the courtroom scenes especially, but also just a lot of the scenes like we just heard the the conversation between Sandra, the main character, and her lawyer. There's a there's a sort of philosophical bent to the movie, right? I don't give a fuck about the truth. This is how you are perceived by others. Uh, 
Julia, the, the film critic for your great paper, Justin Chang, called this a who spun it rather than a who done it. And I think that's that's perfect. It sort of gets at the fact that this is a movie all about perspective and who's telling the story and the undecidability, you know, how even in a court of law itself, what actual truth is, is so elusive. Um, I, yeah, I don't want to say too much more about it, but just I, I think that... This should not be oversold as what I just tried to sell it as, which is a very smart, thinky European film. It's also like a pulse-pounding thriller where you really are, um, with each new turn of the narrative, just drawn in further and further with fantastic performances across the board. I agree, Steve, that Milo Machado Grainer, the boy who must be, I don't know, 12 or 13, who plays their son, is just fantastic. And he has such a difficult part. Yeah, he's unreal. He's so good in this movie. Um, Julia, what'd you make of it? I, I really liked it. It's tight and clever and surprising in all of the ways that it is fun when a movie is. I mean, down to the the music that the husband plays to drown out the flirtatious interview is a steel drum cover of the song Pimp by 50 Cent. And you hear it over and over again in the movie in various different um, formats and reconstructions. Je sais pas, je suis fatigué. Il faut que je travaille un peu, que je me repose. Moi, tu me demandes pas ce que je vais faire. It's just, it's like what a sensation I associate with French pop music, kind of of like, uh, of course, this is what's playing in an artsy French chalet. Um, I mean, it, to put a finer point on what Dana said, it's like an arty, arty movie that one can, but it's also just kind of a juicy watch. Um, I'm curious what you guys think of the notion that this is somehow about like female credibility. Cause I feel like I've read a few very smart critics making arguments to that effect. And it's, you know, it's about whether we believe whether we think Sandra did it and what it would mean for her to have done it and how we might ever know if she's innocent and, and sort of what types of things make people less likely to believe women and and when that thread came up in reviews i was like yeah i guess it is about that but somehow she seems to embody such a specific type of woman and they seem to inhabit in the flashbacks we see a very specific marriage that i don't know i didn't see it as about gender and credibility in quite the same way because it's about, felt so specific to their situation um i yeah. was curious what whether you guys read that what you made of that sort of gendered analysis of the film. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, it's the director said to an interview, or I think it may have been to Dan Coyce. Uh, I don't play the bullshit mystery game that we always see in genre movies. I mean, so as a first pass, the director, her own and co-writer of the film, she wrote it with her romantic life partner. Um, you know, she just wanted to make the most non-reductive film possible even though it's about possibly a foul play and a trial to determine that and it, i think that includes any kind of reductive feminist reading of the movie a critically important plot fact of the film is that she's um married to a fellow writer whose career hasn't been successful and it's anatomy of a marriage really and and about a power discrepant marriage which there's a one scene in it is just to me an absolute tour de force, which is that the presence of this audio tape becomes very important and it spoils nothing, I think, to say that at the moment it's played in court, you then enter into the actual scene of the couple having that recorded audio recorded fight. And you see the actor alive of the, playing the husband, you see the husband alive finally. And it is a long tour de force 
scene, a marital fight that rings with such truth, the back and forth of it, the two competing narratives. Um, and it gets to the word, I w- and I won't give anything away, but it gets to the concept of plunder. And you begin to think, God, this movie, it's not about guilt, like assuming that it's not simply about guilt or innocence or a Perry Mason revelation, right? It's sort of about, it is really anatomy of a fall, like that man's fall in some sense. And whether we assign responsibility for his decline to him or to her or to both or to nothing or to the fates becomes a really interesting, really deep and compelling question. That said, I do want to say one thing, which is that I liked this movie more than I admired it. I felt, Dana, it indulged a little bit in a kind of and this is so condescending. I mean, I just can't think of a better way to put it, but almost like the sort of grad student revelations about, you know, instability of narrative and like the cold analytic, but ultimately false truths of a trial and the binaries therein of guilt and innocence and the far more ambiguous, you know, and competing and mutually negating occasionally uh, narratives of uh, of a marriage and a family. I mean, I, 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 it, it seemed a little, it seemed for trying so hard not to be pat, it in the end struck me as somewhat weirdly pat. I disagree with that personally. I I, I cried several times, including mm. at the end, and was, was yeah. really emotionally involved. I can see that being a criticism, and I've read that criticism of it in places. And so, you know, I just I just disagree with it. And, and I think a big part of what lifts it above that, like I say, is the performances, especially from the boy and from Sandra Huller, who, by the way, all eyes on Sandra Huller this award season, because she's both in this movie and pl- and then plays an extraordinarily difficult part beautifully in uh, in the zone of interest, which is a movie to be released later in the year. And the star of one of my favorite movies of the 21st century, Tony Erdman. I mean, I just can't recommend it highly enough. But Julia, oh, Tony Erdman, of course. We talked about it on the show, just right? so wonderful, that film. Julia, um... I guess I had the flip side reaction, Steve, which is I see what you mean about artiness and knowability and, you know, kind of classic questions of truth and perception. But again, it's the same response. I had the same response to that that I did to the points about gender, which is like, the performances here are so specific and the writing that supports them and the direction are so specific that it does not feel schematic in that way. So it doesn't feel like it's schematically about gender and it also doesn't feel like it's schematically about truth. Mm. I, I, I think that the texture and performances here, to me, it's almost the reverse. They like elevate the movie to beyond what it should be on paper because you really believe that these people are caught in this situation with this specificity yeah, and there's I, I just totally a lot of agree. precision and restraint in in all of the choices surrounding it that that made me really thrilled to it yeah i, I just couldn't couldn't agree more I, I i totally agree i recommended this to a few people since seeing it and, and and my kind of tagline to get them to go is that i think it's a really really good dinner and a movie date kind of movie because it's full of you know both intellectual and philosophical points to argue about and just emotional heft and it's just a movie that you can think about and talk about for a long while after so i think if you if you want to see something at the movies that is demanding but also you know delivers cinematic pleasures in in good measure this is a good choice oh yeah i think people should absolutely go to this movie and um budget time at for for post game with whoever you go with um anyway it's anatomy of a fall it's in theaters now just a magnificently subtle and suspenseful film it apparently is not going to be submitted for best foreign by france but i 
wouldn't be surprised to see it nominated for Best Picture. We will see, but definitely check it out. It is it's very worth it. And I should say it's very hard to talk about without spoiling, so we're going to do a plus segment on Anatomy of a Fall with spoilers. Check it out. Okay, well, Hot Ones, which I have to admit I'd never heard of until a few days ago, uh, has been around since 2015. It's a, uh, It started on the food culture site First We Feast, and it's just a fucking great MacGuffin. What can you say? Effectively, it's an interview show featuring celebrities who eat progressively hotter wings. They've been spiced with hotter hot sauces as they go 10 in a row basically and each one that they eat corresponds with uh it turns out to be a pretty well-researched uh, question and as they go on they're struggling harder and harder to like remain composed do justice to the question but they become like atomic in their heat by the last two or three and it's incredibly funny and weirdly revealing and sort of touching i mean i don't even know how to describe it anyway let's listen to a clip it'll give you some flavor out if you've never seen it this one is uh jennifer lawrence uh jay law and as you can imagine they get more frantic sounding as the spice level gets higher that's the premise here's jennifer lawrence towards the end of her appearance on hot ones Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's go. So I was reading, I was reading that early on in your career, you arranged a meeting with director Adam McKay and showed up prepared with a binder full of notes on Will Ferrell movies. Reflecting on the catalog, what in your opinion is Will Ferrell's greatest cinematic masterpiece and why? I, I didn't have an actual binder. I just meant how ridiculous it was that I was like 18 and was like, I'm going to set up a general meeting with Adam McKay because I really love his work, you know? <laughs> I mean, at the time he wasn't like, Adam McKay. He was like, Adam McKay. Um, and so, but I, I just like, I was trying to tell him all the stuff that I loved about his movies. Uh, Anchorman, I guess, is like the obvious one, but what's so great about Elf is that when you're making a movie, you really don't know. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. And so to be in a, in an elf costume, in this green costume, just like marching around the city, And doing all of that and like committing like Santa like that <laughs> is just um, really admirable. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, all right, Julia, uh, make sense of this for me. It was fun to sit down and actually watch a bunch of these in a row, like from start to finish. Because like most people, although I guess not you, Steve, I have been familiar with this ambient internet phenomenon for however many years, because the little clips go viral and you have a sense that, oh, so-and-so had a very funny Hot Ones, or you have a sense of like, oh, gosh, Hot Ones, that's really still happening. I guess they found a format that works. Um, But it was interesting to think of it as more of a complete text for the purposes of criticism on this show. Um, I mean, it's like hard as a journalist to applaud the fact that celebrities no longer need us. And so they can be extremely withholding with uh, how it is that they choose to share themselves with the public. And they often just do it directly through their social media. Or sometimes they do it because somebody comes up with a format that feels fun. And I think I spoke about this a little bit when we talked about Strike Force 5. But part of what was so interesting and revealing about that show is that, like, weirdly, Jimmy Fallon is the best interviewer, even though he's not the one I'd be most excited to have dinner with, if that makes sense. Because what he does is come up with these like bits 
that force invulnerable seeming famous people to make themselves vulnerable in public and thus reveal some sense of the core, right? So if you see someone doing karaoke or playing a dumb game show for Jimmy Fallon, like often one that actually calls on them to like deploy their talent, but in a, in a, in a kind of rough and tumble way, you feel like you're getting to know them, which is the thing that you want from like a celebrity interview or a celebrity profile. And it's just harder and harder to get that. So the genius of Hot Ones is that it actually is like asking these people to lie on a bed of nails. Like you're like, what happens to a famous person when they are in physical distress? <laughs> what will they reveal about themselves, about their fortitude, about their culinary upbringings? Um, and and it is it is often truly revealing. Um, so we, we, we watched a bunch with my children and so we we went for folks they know. So we saw John Mulaney and Harry Kane, the the British soccer player, um, and then we did the Jennifer Lawrence one just because it's uh, so so famous um, and really interesting, right? To watch like a, a recovering addict withstand physical pain. So John Mulaney just kind of grimaces mildly and like talks rat a tat and dryly through the whole thing. Tangy. This is still food, though. Right. And the exactly. bomb wasn't. Exactly. The bomb is something else. A cologne, maybe. Yeah. Harry Kane, <laughs> bless his sweet British soul, seems to have, like, never encountered a spice stronger than cinnamon before in his life, and he's clearly, like, <laughs> dying. <coughs> that is disgusting. <laughs> like the others, I feel like you could have with a nice bit of food. or Right, some, even some when of, they were spicy... You saw some sort yeah, of redeeming little... culinary quality. Not in this one, though. <laughs> but he's also, like, an athlete. Like, what has he done for decades? But, like, withstand physical duress and, like, be able to know how that, like, okay, eventually this this workout or this game or this 90 minutes of sprinting around will be over. So he just, like, grits through it, getting pinker and pinker. Um, and then what is J-Law, if not, like delightfully performative of all her emotions in a charming fashion. So of course she loses her shit in an incredibly charming way. Um, I don't know. It's enjoyable. I don't know that I'm going to go back and like watch them all. I will say that my children now are like spice. Maybe I think spice is cool. And I'm like, oh my God, you can't skip directly from like butter and salt being the only acceptable combo <laughs> to hot sauce without going through. Like you have to like go through the food I cook and like oregano first and they're like nope just tabasco straight to tabasco <laughs> straight to the scotch bonnet twenty thousand scoville whatever it is i think the thing that surprised me pleasantly about hot ones which like julia i was very familiar with it as a meme phenomenon in fact i thought each episode was going to be like five minutes long because that's what you always see clips of floating around but they are they tend to be it seems like by now about 25 minutes or so. The thing that surprised me the most was the quality of the questions. And I saw that really consistently in the responses of the interviewees, too. I mean, in, in our research and also just in, in watching episodes, I think I know 
Viola Davis as she's leaving the, you know, the Hot Ones stage, who, by the way, has a very watchable, very, very funny um, episode of Hot Ones, says, fantastic questions. Uh, apparently, I'm, I'm reading here, Josh Brolin said, best questions I've ever been asked in an interview. And Sean Evans, this very unassuming guy who's eating hot wings opposite the celebrity, apparently is obsessed with research and spends a really long time, you know, digging deep into the deep cuts of people's careers. And, you know, they love that. People love to sort of feel like they're they're being seen. And I had expected exactly the opposite because it's such a grabby premise. I just thought, surely it's just going to be promote your latest project while eating hot wings and it's going to feel sort of like uh, an Entertainment Tonight level interview. And that is not the case at all. Like Viola Davis really gets into craft and Juilliard and, you know, says some very funny and smart things about what it is to be an actor and prepare for a role, all the while, you know, sweating and gasping her way through various hot sauces. The thing about law dramas is it really challenges your process as an actor. It's hard to tap into emotion because I know. I'm I'm surprised I'm not pissing in my pants right now. <laughs> I mean, I hate the word relatable, but this is such an innocent way to make a famous person vulnerable. Like Julia, as you say, it's just so it's so human, and it's it's like bed of nails is right, and yet you know, I mean, obviously you weren't being literal, but there's something about this specific thing, right? Because it's it is something most people do to some degree for pleasure, right? Spice food and make it hotter very often. And yet as you go along the Scoville scale or whatever it's called, you know, you it's it's like pleasure and pain. Like it's the fact that you're watching someone go from pleasure to pain along a, a calibrated spectrum. What that does to their defenses, as you say, Julia, this incredibly finely honed defenses, you know, against revela- unwanted revelation and their ability to always make themselves, you know, a professional ability to always put forward your best self, right? And and just to watch that sort of break as that as you span that spectrum, it's just kind of great. And then it works because the questions are really good, right? They're incredibly thoughtful, well-researched questions that you're they're qualitatively better questions getting like weirdly qualitatively better answers because of the oddity of the circumstances. And the very worst thing a famous person could do under these circumstances is not be game in a way. And once you're game for this, you know, yeah, yeah, all kinds of things like demeanor clues and and actual sort of substantive answers rise to the surface unexpectedly. It's really just it's just fun and weird and like how they hit upon this formula. Yeah, I mean, look, the other thing I'll say to feeling the like journalist lament of like they don't need us anymore to both days. The celebrities don't need us to reveal themselves to their public and the public doesn't need us to find revelations about their celebrities. Like some of that is sad for my profession, but like some of that is like uh, the classic outlets got beat. Like this is a straight up good concept for a conversation show. And like the the innovation of it and the kind of combination between a, a, a you know, sort of actor's studio limited set and, and hot sauce is surprising. And like one of the good things that came out of the wild experimentation of people trying to figure out what would get video views on the internet in the 20 teens, right? So I have to like doff my cap to that. I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that these are like, quote, the best questions that could be asked because 
they are definitely not idiotic and they definitely demonstrate the research that has been done, but they weirdly remind me of the questions that like I used to ask at the very beginning of my reporting career, where you're like trying to prove how much homework you did. And the question is almost like a little bit more about that than about actually trying to elicit something revealing. And like, look, I chose the editor path. Like I'm, I don't think I am like the, a great interviewer um, or that kind of deft questioning is my top journalistic skill set, but I have so much admiration for the people who do it. And what good questioning does is get people to reveal things they don't want to reveal or get them to explain things that they wouldn't have otherwise explained. And I think you hear in that Jennifer Lawrence clip, like actually what she says about Elf is really interesting and like helps, does help, like that one I think does go to an interesting place and does help you um, understand kind of what she admires and how she thinks about like the risk and fear in a performance and how much you have to commit before you know what you're committing to. So it's not that they never go anywhere, but they, they only go places that are safe. Like Josh Brolin loved the question because the question was like, tell us about the little teeny tiny theater where you got your start and gave him a chance to talk about this time of life that, that probably people don't ask me about that much. So like, that is good, but it's, Again, this is coming back to the journalistic lament. It's safe. It's safe. Like none of the questions are dangerous for them. The danger lies in the hot sauce yeah, and the questions are safe. Can I push back on your pushback? I mean, does danger equal Please. Tr- truth, right? I mean, that that's a journalistic, you know, impulse, right? It's like the little bit that tastes for blood, which is necessary to a certain kind of reporting. The truth is these people are half real, half fabrications or whatever the percentages their person and persona and there's one thing is to find out something they don't want you to know which i guess is a kind of truth though why it needs to be known or retailed is not always so clear but like i want to hear a person testify to what made them who they were like if i find their work interesting you know that too is a kind of truth and i don't know that it's like lighter on the scale of importance than something they're clinging to and don't want you to know yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I guess I feel like with the vibe of this show, which is so silly and fun, you don't necessarily want to, people to be confronting their, their deepest selves as you might in a different kind of profile. The fact that they're relaxed, enjoying themselves and, and, and opening up is, is kind of enough. Um, I had one more that I wanted to recommend before we close it as a starter, but I will say that I think in the future I may be treating Hot Ones the way I treat Mark Maron's podcast, which is that I will watch it. I'll tune in when it's someone I'm really interested in. It's, it's, it'll basically be another way of getting to know that person that you might not you might not get to know them otherwise. Anyway, as a, a starter episode and a fun way in, I also wanted to recommend the Key and Peel episode, which was taped at an interesting moment. It was right after their show ended, their sketch show, before um, you know Jordan Peel launched his career as the director he is now, and when their joint first film project, Keanu, was about to be released—a movie that you know nobody that didn't make much of a splash and is now kind of forgotten. But you kind of get to see Key and Peel when they're still collaborating, but they're successful, and uh, and you see how they riff off of each other and how their senses of humor. Um, both kind of blend and, and at times clash. So that's that's a fun one to start with. That's a whole, that's, that's a, <coughs> Genghis Khan just rode through my tonsils. What's going on? Okay, well, it's Hot Ones, and it's easy to find on the internet, on YouTube, various other places. Uh, it's very fun. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Let's uh, Let's move on. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, What do you have? You know, Steve, last week we talked about audiobooks on the show and our relationship to, to listening to them. And one of the things I said is that lately I've become such an audiobook listener that podcasts have been somewhat displaced. Uh, but I want to stand up for podcasts, our own medium, uh, because I also discovered a good podcast during the past couple months that I've been dipping into uh, on and off, not trying to listen in order because there's really a lot of it and it's quite dense. Um, but there's a really excellent podcast called the French History Podcast. Have either of you heard of or about this one at all? Uh, no. no, I like the literalism of the name, though, assuming it's about <laughs> French history. I mean, it very much is a square sort of podcast. You know, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of, um, it's not a Hot Ones <laughs> version of French history. Um, but it's it's extremely well done and chooses really interesting angles on French history that aren't always just about France. They're often global, transhistorical, international, you know, so there's episodes about Roman ruins, you know, across the, the country. Um, there's an episode which I was going to mention as a starter. It was the first one that I heard. It's from this September called Thomas Jefferson's Paris. It's just about what Paris was like in the in the years that he was there and, you know, his sort of really hit the way that he brought French culture to the U.S. Um, that's a fascinating one. Anyway, I mean, it's, it's a pretty dense listen. The episodes are usually over half an hour, sometimes more. Um, but I like that each one is freestanding. It's not chronological. It's not building on previous things. So if you just feel like learning some stuff about French history and world history, put the French history podcast on your podcast queue. Oh, that sounds cool. Uh, Julia, what do you have? All right. I have a, an endorsement and an aspiration and an esprit d'escalier, uh, not in that order. So my, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Killers of the Flower Moon since our conversation last week. And Owen Gleiberman who I think is now a variety, um, wrote a review that really helped me put my finger further on what bothered me about the Leo DiCaprio character and the, the kind of confusing cipher that he is in the film. So my endorsement is the Owen Gleiberman essay uh, about that character. And, and my esprit d'escalier is just, I think the reason, the thing I didn't quite get around to understanding last week the reason that bothered me so much in the movie is because I feel like by making the evil so characterologically incomprehensible like why would you be like that why would you do that why would you treat her that way why would you listen to the guy it it kind of lets the audience off the hook because it lets you watch the movie and be like well I wouldn't be an idiot like that dude so uh, and I think what's much more interesting about the darkness of this story is how how much this happened, how many people did some version of this. Uh, so anyway, Owen Gleiberman's essay, very much worth worth reading. Um, and then my aspiration, you know, we, we um, so much has been said already about the awful death of Matthew Perry, which I think has hit so many hard, both those folks who loved friends and, and also people who've known people in their lives with addiction. Um, I have not yet read the memoir, but by all accounts, it's really, um, really great and really brave recounting of what a struggle with addiction can be, even for someone with incredible resources. Um, and so I'm, I'm bumping that up my list to read in Matthew Perry's honor. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Perry, and it would be hard to call anybody on such an ensemble show the straw that stirred the drink, as it were. And you could probably make an argument for the other five cast members as well on any given day. But very often it felt to me as a moderate fan of the show early on 
that Perry was was that was that one. Um, anyway, my endorsement this week is the book Naples Forty Four. That's forty four is in the year nineteen forty four. Naples Forty Four, an intelligence officer in the Italian labyrinth. Uh, it's a military memoir by uh, the British travel writer and uh, also sometimes novelist Norman Lewis. It's published in the late seventies, but it details his. He has the, he's in this little sort of intelligent British intelligence unit that's going to quote unquote liberate the city of Naples. And what drew me to it is that I was reading this Italian writer, Curzio Malaparte, who may or may not have been a fascist in unknowable degrees. Um, in real life, Malaparte accompanied the American general and the troops into the city of Naples to help liberate it and act as a go-between. And Naples, of course, is the city of Ferrante, right? I mean, this t- then as now, like very, very mob-controlled city, the Camorra uh, is in control of it. It's like, it's one of the most deeply itself places in the world. It's its own folkways and culture are its own and nobody else's in some deep and inscrutable way. And so Malaparte as an Italian was dealing with that and the relationship between these American would-be liberators and that the fabric of that culture. And Lewis is dealing with the same subject, but from a very English, like he's an unbelievably gifted travel writer and and dry wit with an appreciation for the weirdness of humanity and the possibilities and depths of human suffering. I mean, it's widely considered to be one of the greatest nonfiction books of the 20th century. I know Cumberbatch uh, made a documentary um, about it a number of years ago, about six, seven years ago. It's just one of those books that deserves to be read. It's like a deeply humane document. And though this isn't a trump card at all, I don't think he really, I I, I really believe Lewis doesn't quote unquote other the the Neapolitans. And in fact, he married a, a, a Sicilian woman and lived, uh, ended up living, and I know Naples is not in Sicily, but he ended up sort of half a citizen of Italy and very deeply embedded in the culture of Sicily, about which you also wrote beautifully. I just think it's an extraordinary book. I cannot believe how fucking good it is, and I wish I had read it sooner. It's called Naples 44 by Norman Lewis. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Dana, thank you so much. Another really fun show. It's a pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.